right. Thank you all so much for joining us again for another episode of the Dayson Digest. My name is Becca Bruning, and I'm back again from a couple weeks ago. So I'm one of the PGY2 infectious diseases uh, pharmacy residents at the University of Kentucky, and I'm here joined by my co-resident. Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Griffith. I am the other PGY2 in ID. I'm here at the University of Kentucky. Today, we will be going over a recent journal article. Um, this is titled The Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing. This is an updated primer for clinicians in the era of antimicrobial resistance um, with insights from the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. Um, this was by Winsler and colleagues and was published in Pharmacotherapy on February 20th of 2023. Okay, Becca, why don't you go ahead and set the stage for this article? Thanks, Cam. Yeah, I, I think this article highlights a lot of really important things, so we're excited to dive in. Um, antimicrobial susceptibility testing is a really fundamental tenet of ID patient management, antimicrobial drug development, epidemiology, public health, and clinical microbiology. And historically, our antimicrobial susceptibility tests were developed anywhere from 50 to 100 years ago, but we're still using these same tests today and they are reliant on phenotypic or more growth-based testing. And so there is kind of a time delay anywhere from 48 to 72 hours from the time of culture collection to when we get those susceptibility results and are able to identify the organism. And so this delay does necessitate the use of empiric untargeted antimicrobial therapy, which of course can contribute to the development of antimicrobial resistance when it's overly broad, but then on the flip side, if it's too narrow, we can see increased mortality if we get it wrong up front, basically. So Cam, what kinds of technological advancements that prompted the, this article to, to be published and discuss antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, thanks, Becca. Um, so some of the technological advancements we've seen um, since the last edition of this paper um, where, where advanced assays for automated conventional phenotypic antimicrobial susceptibility testing. We also now have genotypic and also phenotypic rapid diagnostic tests, as well as there have been new novel antimicrobial agents that have been developed specifically to combat the resistance we've seen in a number of our microorganisms, and also to kind of help um, improve patient outcomes and overcome um, this battle against antimicrobial resistance. Um, there have been robust relationships between both the clinical microbiology labs and also antimicrobial stewardship programs. Some of the challenges um, related to the underappreciation of the importance of developing and implementing these microbiological um, diagnostics include impediments created by regulatory landscapes, um, as well as the correct interpretation and application of these laboratory um, results by clinicians of not only the microbiology lab portions, but also the antimicrobial stewardship practices um, for, for clinicians. Um, so, Becca, do you want to go ahead and start to dive into some of the antimicrobial susceptibility tests? Yeah, definitely. And, and this is really the, the meat and potatoes of the article. So, we'll try to cover these in an efficient manner, but we still want to make sure that we do get to discuss them. Um, so, broadly, there are kind of two big buckets that we want to discuss. And so we will, um, in on one end, talk about our conventional microbiologic methods of quantitative and qualitative MIC testing. 
And then we'll also discuss a lot more of those rapid diagnostic tests that have genotypic and or phenotypic results as well. So when we look at these conventional microbiologic methods, um, we'll talk first about some of our quantitative MIC methods. And so these, of course, express our results numerically. These are the ones where we're getting that actual MIC value. And the first one we'll talk about is one of the gold standard references for uh, CLSI or the Clinical Laboratory and Sciences Institute, which we'll kind of talk about a little bit more later too, but this is Ross microdilution. And it does involve the use of kind of those 96 well plates and microtiter trays that allow for multiple antibiotics to be tested in a range of twofold um, serial dilution. So think about concentrations like two, four, eight micrograms per milliliter, which is what you've probably seen reported as MICs as well. And so we'll have various dilutions of antibiotic and a standard inoculum of bacteria that are incubated in these 96 well plates overnight. So typically anywhere from 16 to 20 hours. And then we check back to see if there's bacterial growth which is indicated by visible turbidity. And then the MIC is read as the lowest dilution of antimicrobial with no visible growth in the well. And so some of the advantages of broth microdilution are that it's very accurate and very reproducible, um, kind of within plus or minus one log dilution is, is the uh, standard error rate that's allowed for this. And some of the disadvantages are that a lot of our newly approved antimicrobials are not initially included in some of these commercial broth microdilution panels. And so, Cam, can you touch on some of the automated uh, broth microdilution or, or more conventional phenotypic antimicrobial susceptibility platforms that we use? Yeah, thanks, Becca. That was a great overview. Um, so, some of the automated conventional phenotypic antimicrobial stewards antimicrobial susceptibility platforms um, typically use a miniaturized um, broth microdilution um, based on method and also automated pathogen identification. Um, and then also there's interpretation as well in a lot of these systems. So there's currently four FDA cleared um, automated conventional phenotypic antimicrobial susceptibility testing systems. This is going to include Microscan, Phoenix, Vitec 2, and Sensitire. Um, all four of those are FDA cleared, um, so they may be used in multiple, multiple hospitals. Um, Microscan, Phoenix, and Sensitire um, systems are measured in MICs directly by assessing the bacterial growth, um, while Vitec instead actually calculates um, rather than using the measured MICs. Um, by comparing growth of the test isolate. Our next um, test that we often see is going to be the auger dilution. This is another gold standard reference method. This involves the addition of antibiotics to the auger medium at a two-fold serial um, con concentration. Also inoculation of the test organism, and also it requires overnight incubation and breeding. This is labor and time intensive, um, but some commercial auger dilution panels are available for certain organisms and also antimicrobial combinations. Another antimicrobial susceptibility test that we often see is auger gradient diffusion. This is typically what you would see um, with e-test 
or MRC test strip. Use um, is an established antimicrobial concentration gradient impregnated within a gradient strip. The MRC read typically takes about 16 and 20 hours um, after incubation, uh, where the pointed end of the ellipse intersects the, with the diffusion strip. Some disadvantages of this strip or the auger gradient diff diffusion is going to be that it's a manual process. It's also not the reference method, and it's relatively more expensive as some of these may cost three to nine dollars for each strip and also subject to inter-reader variability. Becca, would you like to talk about the last qualitative MIC test? Yeah, thanks, Cam. Um, and I will say just uh, in general, the figures in this journal article are really, really useful. They give a good visual for how these tests end up being read and how they're interpreted, um, how they're performed, and kind of the workflow that micro uh, labs have to go through to ultimately get the susceptibility testing methods and, and kind of the intervening steps that rapid diagnostics can provide as well in figure two. So I would just refer you to those as well because it, it can be hard to visualize what we're talking about, but those figures are, are really useful. And so the last uh, quantitative MIC susceptibility testing method that I'll discuss is broth disk elution. And this is an older method that's more recently been reintroduced for testing some of our historically problematic agents like the polymyxin. And so as an example, um, we're using colistin discs and they're added to our broth in tubes. And so once the colistin elutes, from the disc into the broth. We also inoculate a standard inoculum of bacteria to these tubes, incubate overnight, and then similarly to some of our other methods, the MIC is read at the lowest concentration um, that is not turbid, so we don't see any growth of that test isolate. And I will say a lot of microlabs do have to employ multiple of these methods, so they may have the automated susceptibility systems like the Phoenix, but they may also have to use uh, things like e-test strips for agents um, that may not be on the Phoenix or if they need to double check or confirm uh, results on the Phoenix as well. So just keep in mind some of those nuances. And even for different strains, like if you're testing for cystic fibrosis patients, they can be really mucoid and may have errors on your automated susceptibility testing machines. So that, again, may be a scenario where something like an e-test strip is required instead of your standard uh, automated testing. So then when we look at our qualitative non-MIC methods, this is really just talking about our agar disk diffusion method. And this doesn't give us an actual MIC value. It allows us to look at the zone of inhibition of the disk, and then we're able to um, categorize that into either susceptible, susceptible dose-dependent, intermediate, or resistant categories based on that zone of inhibition of bacterial growth. Um, and, and that's usually measured in millimeters. And so uh, for this method, the disc containing that fixed concentration of antibiotic is placed onto the agar plate that had been streaked with the standard inoculum. And then after incubation is when we look back at the diameter of the zone of inhibition and apply it to one of those categories for interpretation. Some of the advantages of this are that it is often the first susceptibility testing method available for new drugs, and that it's also very accurate. 
of course, one of the disadvantages is that we don't get that actual MIC value, which can be crucial for dose optimization. And so we do have to always correlate the disc zones of inhibition to um, MIC values and, and interpretive criteria when we're revising clinical breakpoints. So that's just something to note about this method. Um, Cam, do you want to go ahead and dive into some of the rapid diagnostic tests? Thanks, Becca. Yes, yeah, so some of the rapid diagnostic tests, um, there's now several commercially available um, of these rapid diagnostic tests capable of identifying pathogens, and some um, also or may only um, detect antimicrobial resistant genes. Um, and this can be done from various specimen samples that include blood, sputum, urine, um, BALs, um, even some CSF fluids. Um, and then even within the GI tract, so there's a lot of a lot of different types of rapid diagnostic tests out there. Um, there's also genotypic um, antimicrobial susceptibility test methods. Um, these are really used to identify any resistant genes. Um, typically, this is done through um, molecular methods and serve as a surrogate for susceptibilities. Although this is typically in combination with phenotypic. Um, perceptibility, that way we can have confirmation of the presence of genes. There's also phenotypic rapid diagnostic tests as well. These are used to augment but not replace our conventional microprocesses. So it's typically, again, used in conjunction with our conventional micro techniques. And really the point of using these rapid diagnostic tests is to decrease the time um, to truly, you know, understand what we're trying to treat, so identify the pathogen, know what possible resistant genes um, may be present, and hopefully optimize therapy a little bit sooner than our traditional methods. Um, as of right now, um, there's only two um, rapid diagnostic tests that have been cleared for being used on indexed blood cultures. So this is going to be the T2 bacteria and also the T2 Canada panels. So this means that these tests can be used on blood cultures um, before they're flagged as positive for bacterial growth or even fungal growth. There are several uh, rapid diagnostic tests that are available for blood cultures that flag as positive and then can be used after a gram stain. So you can do the direct disc diffusion testing from blood. There's also the phenotest um, BC system. Um, this can be done within seven hours of culture positivity. Um, so again, we are really shortening the time um, to identifying um, the possible pathogen, and also phenotypic results with interpretations are also available. Um, however, one disadvantage of the phenotest is that it does not have any genotypic data. There is also the BioFire BCID to multiplex PCR. This can identify the pathogen within one hour after the blood culture becomes positive. Again, um, it can do identification and also has genotypic information as well. And then there's also the EPLEX system. This is typically the most extensive rapid diagnostic test as far as the amount of uh, microorganisms it can identify. It also has gene, uh, genotypic information as well. And this can typically um, be positive within um, 1.5 hours from the positive blood culture. And then lastly, there is varigine, um, which can be done within 2. Point, well, we'll have results back within 2.5 hours after the positive blood culture. 
And jumping back to the biofire really fast, this in comparison to the EPLEX lacks identification for a multitude of microbes, thinking of our possible contaminated uh, microbes such as bacillus, bacterium, Pseudobacterium, and also Micrococcus species. However, compared to EPLEX as well, it does identify a few more of the resistant genes um, that we may be concerned with, such, a, such as the MREJ. Um, gene in gram positives and also the MCR1 um, for some of our gram negatives. Becca, would you like to go over the advantages and disadvantages of some of these rapid diagnostic tests? Yeah, I think you touched on them pretty well. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the quicker time to escalation or de-escalation and in, in really optimizing our therapy sooner than what our conventional microbiology may allow. There's also some data that shows significant improvements in clinical and economic outcomes. So this is by decreasing the length of stay and really improving our antimicrobial usage as well. We can see some of those clinical and economic benefits. Some of the disadvantages are that they can be labor and time intensive. Um, it is pretty costly upfront to obtain some of this material prior to uh, then seeing the, the benefits afterwards. And then of course, interpreting these results can be pretty confusing. And so it does require education for providers and pharmacists that are going to be viewing these results in order to then apply it to treatment scenarios. There can also sometimes be hesitancy among clinicians to de-escalate based on genotypic results alone um, due to fear of there being a possible mismatch between phenotypic and genotypic results. Um, and so some of the benefits that you could think about with like the Accelerate Pheno that he mentioned that doesn't have genotypic results, but does give the phenotypic results is really showing you what the patient is expressing. Um, and, and that's why I think sometimes there's hesitancy and, and a higher reliance on some of the phenotypic results. Um, but of course, if a gene is present and, and may not be being expressed, you could still be concerned that at some point it may be expressed. So uh, there's definitely benefits to having both types of information. Some of the remainder of the article really focuses on um, some of the logistics and, and some of the organizations. And so when we think about breakpoint setting, all FDA approved drugs do have breakpoints that were set by the FDA at the time of their approval. And historically, the FDA would have to update their drug label in order to adopt new breakpoints. But more recently in 2016, the 21st Century Cures Act allows um, these standards development organizations to be recognized and the FDA is allowed to adopt the breakpoints that are set by these uh, standards development organizations. So right now the CLSI or the Clinical Laboratory Sciences Institute is the only organization that's recognized as one of these standards development organizations. And the CLSI is really prompted to update these breakpoints as new information develops. And, and when we think about when these drugs are initially approved, they really probably haven't been used that much, not exposed to that many patients. So we can see the emergence of new resistance mechanisms that may be shifting the MIC distribution. Or maybe there's also new pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic information that prompts us to look at different dosing schemes. And so when updating breakpoints, the CLSI does review three different types of data. They're looking at these microbiologic considerations, so those MIC distributions, the epidemiologic cutoff values, 
They're also considering the PKPD. So looking at some of our modeling simulations like Monte Carlo simulations, also thinking about the target side of infection. So if we're treating a CNS infection, meningitis, or urinary um, tract infection, we may have different breakpoints, thinking about how the antimicrobial gets to the site of action. And then also the dosing considerations. Um, and the last type of data that they review are with the clinical outcomes. So Cam, do you wanna talk about kind of uh, implementing these susceptibility tests and, and how they can be optimized from a stewardship perspective, not just for ID pharmacists, but also for primary team pharmacists to to kind of consider and, and help advocate for appropriate antimicrobial use based on these susceptibility tests? Yeah, thanks, Becca. Um, so when implement, it can be a real challenge of implementing and optimizing the antimicrobial susceptibility test. So it's really important to recognize that there can be inter-strain and also inter-laboratory um, variability as all micro labs do not run exactly the same. Um, it's also really important that we recognize that the phenotypic MIC methods are accurate within one log dilution, so whether that is above or um, below. And that's going to be really difficult when it comes to some of our um, MICs that come back at the breakpoint for a lot of our microorganisms and antimicrobials. And really how we try to test these different um, diagnostic tests is the accuracy based on categorical agreement for false susceptibility and also false resistance. So this can be challenging, um, again, when the MSC distribution, distributions are clustered around breakpoints. For example, um, Purposeful and Tazobactam um, and E. coli breakpoints um, are typically 16 over 4 for susceptible dose dependent, but could also be 8, 16, or 32. Um, which would be anywhere from susceptible to susceptible dose dependent or even resistance for that one isolate. Changing breakpoints can also be a challenge um, for commercial antimicrobial susceptibility machines um, that may require recalibration um, and also the release of updated panels, um, which can take months to years to develop and then also implement from a regulatory standpoint. On top of that, once these new assays are brought to um, the microlab, these must also be validated by that microlab. So this could previously be in-house. However, recent guidance from the College of American Pathologists, um, which oversees our microlaboratories, have made changes to the guidance and these recommendations as well, um, as far as it pertains to utilizing updated breakpoints. There is also a lot of clinical applications to these antimicrobial susceptibility tests. One is the high yield and low cost of stewardship initiatives via cascades, and also being able to select the recording of these antimicrobial susceptibility test results. Additionally, changing interpretation for things like inducible resistance um, that may not be reflected in in vitro studies. Comments on micro-reporting, um, such as dosing and other things should be considered. Really, um, this article does heavily talk about the development of antibiograms, and this should serve as a foundation for empiric therapy recommendations. Also within this article, they really do talk about and recommend that the antimicrobial stewardship program is well placed in the development of these antibiograms with the microlabs. Additionally, diagnostic stewardship is really when we're using the right test the right, for the right patient at the right time. So realizing that all we have, you know, all of these new rapid diagnostic tests 
um, but it's really important to only use them when we need to and we have a disease state in which this test is going to actually help us. Um, and also realizing that only because we get a positive culture, it does not mean that this is necessarily the pathogen that's causing an infection. So being able to educate on the difference between um, infection and colonization is really important when implementing antimicrobial susceptibility tests. One way to kind of counteract and help with the education for the use of these rapid diagnostic tests um, is handshake stewardship is one way to really you know, be able to discuss um, with clinicians um, who may be overusing some of these um, tests and really educate them on when it's most appropriate um, to use these tests and which patients um, would benefit the most from these. And then, Becca, would you like to um, go ahead and conclude this article? Yeah, I think, um, you know, overall, this was a ton of information uh, that we just discussed, but we think it's really useful to emphasize the huge expansion in rapid diagnostics technology and a lot of the changing breakpoints that have happened just within the last decade. Um, and these have obviously greatly impacted and will continue to impact our microbiology labs and the way that we're able to perform day-to-day -day antimicrobial stewardship. So just thinking about all of the collaborations with our physician providers, um, pharmacists, information technology, so our IT colleagues, medication use safety, just to get all of these implemented and the education put together as well. We really appreciate you guys joining us for this and would highly recommend uh, saving this article to your resource folder to continue to reference some of those really helpful figures. And thanks to our colleagues at SIDP. Have a great day, everybody.